Matthew 17, moving right through. Today we're going to take verses 14 to 20, which says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, came up to Jesus, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let me start off by saying this. I'm not going to come. How many of you have a King James right now, or a new King James? Uh, we're not, I'm not going to comment on verse 21, uh, because... A lot of you that don't have a King James or a New King James but have an ESV or NASV don't have one. It jumps from verse 20 to 22. We've talked about this before. We've seen this before in the Gospels. That verse is not in the ESV or in the NASV because it's, it didn't exist in the earliest Greek manuscripts. It was added later by the scribe or the copyist for whatever reason to the Textus Receptus, which is a more recent Greek manuscript that the King James uses. I'm glad I could completely confuse you. Go home and look at it. But uh, I, I'm not going to comment on it because it's not in the earliest. I'm also not going to comment on it because it's just weird. And uh, you're supposed to laugh. All right. I didn't mean that blasphemously. Uh, it, it's, it's odd. And if, if you look at where it's placed and what it says, it actually kind of undoes in a weird way that which is being said before. So we're not going to talk about that. If you're interested in verse 21, go home and knock yourself out. There's a ton of resources. There's a lot of tools. There's a lot of different parallels and translations that you can use to access original language and access the history of your scriptures. Are they trustworthy? Absolutely. Nothing between the earliest manuscripts and the more recent manuscripts um, debate or undo or contradict on essential doctrine or major doctrine. None of it. They're all smaller things. So nothing to get worried about, but we're always happy to talk about those things if you want to. Um, I want us to acknowledge, first off, what a master teacher, once again, Jesus is. The guy, the, he is just a master teacher. Because one of the things that a master teacher does is he takes everyday things, familiar things, uh, to you and I to communicate higher truths so that we can actually put our hand around things that otherwise we can't grasp too well. He does this again here with faith and a mustard seed and big things in a mustard seed. And I don't know if you know what a mustard seed looks like, but it's, it's so small that you can barely see it if one is sitting on the tip of your finger, which is really bad for you and I because of what he later says here. So in other words, just right off the bat, we can all know that you and I don't have much of a faith, a faith that we really can't even see if it was sitting on the end of our finger, uh, which is kind of weird. Um, I also want to say that scriptures like this and teachings like this, passages like this from Jesus are some of the most controversial and divisive 
and can be because of that dangerous passages for us to do something with if we do not season it with other scriptures. Scripture interprets scripture. I hope you guys all know that basic rule of Bible reading and um, developing and forming doctrine on any given subject is scripture interprets scripture. Um, if it does not, if we don't allow scripture to interpret scripture, it's, it's really easy for us to come up with nonsense. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of little cults and living room gatherings today and, and even big gatherings today that fill stadiums that are built off of isolating subjects and doctrines and then emphasizing those things. So we have to be super careful not to isolate Scripture because to not isolate Scripture is to rightly divide the Word of God. We must remember that to collect all the evidence on any given subject is to be able to put that doctrine rightly in its place. Having said that, we must do the same thing with the red letters, um, I'm going to go back to historical translations and how we got our Bibles again. Red letters were not written originally. <laughs> okay, if you didn't know that, you're welcome. Uh, those are something that we added to just make it easier for us to find the words of Jesus. All right? They're, they're, they're a help. Okay? So, so like, um, if, if Paul is right when he says to Timothy, which we believe he is, all Scripture is breathed out by God... He's saying that the red letter and the black letter are all on the same level. That's really what he's saying. Because they all have the same author. So we have, uh, you know, 66 books written by over 40 different authors over uh, hundreds of years uh, in different places that weren't in cahoots with each other and didn't even know each other. But they, they all, it's all one perfect, integrated, focused message system about the Christ and about the Messiah, and about redemption. There's one author that used a lot of different instruments. Some pens, some pencils, some dull, some sharp, right? That's what these guys were. So there's, there's no difference between the red and the black. They're on, they're on the same level. We should take them as if they're on the same level, right? They're all out of the mouth of God, okay? Having said that, all right, let's go. Let's go into the text. Verses 14 and 15, we see that when they, they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often the water. Um, we have a man here, obviously, who's overwhelmed with concern because he's a man whose greatest possession, his child, is in turmoil. And something's not right with his child. So it's a man whose greatest need is to see his son healed, is to see his son fixed. And so right off the bat, I had a hard time with this text, thinking of this, because I have a son who needs to be healed. And I pray and I pray and I pray and I go to Jesus and I'm not seeing anything different change. And I'm thinking if a lot of people in this world with their doctrine of faith like they have, I'm thinking, well, it's my fault because I don't have a big enough faith. And some of you feel the same way too. When you go to the mat over and over and over again about someone that you deeply love and it seems like God is just not listening. This is a reason why we need to be careful with these things. This guy comes to Jesus with his most prized possession, his son. And uh, two days ago, our son, that son, had a birthday, and we didn't even get to say happy birthday because we don't know where he is 
or what he's doing or what his life looks like. And we've never expected anything out of our kids. I don't care if they work in a gas station the rest of their life. I just want them to know Jesus. I just want them to walk with him and know the glories of God their, all their life. And, and I would think that that's acceptable to God. And so there's times that I, I get frustrated, and even this week looking at this, I'm thinking, why isn't this the, the formula? You know what I mean? The easy fix for all of us with our kids. It requires faith to understand that it's not always. We'll get there too. The bottom line, though, as I'm thinking about this and I'm wrestling through this with, with my own child this week is that we must first and foremost continue to do, no matter what we see or don't see, continue to do what it is that this guy did. That's what I need to do, right? Like, go to Jesus still. Do not stop. Not only that, but we need to continue to go to Jesus in the same way that this guy did. This is an interesting sequence if you look at, like, the characteristics of this guy's approach here, right? Like, notice this. His, first, obviously, he came to Jesus. He sought Jesus. But then he kneeled. So we see, like, humility. And the point isn't that we need to kneel, like, every time that we go to God or else God's not going to listen to us or have anything to do with us. That's not the point. But, like, kneeling is a posture of humility. We... we we need to come humbly before God. We're not coming telling him what he should be doing and what he's doing wrong, which I'm really good at, by the way. We need to come humbly, right, um, as, as if he's royalty. That's almost what it looks like, the picture you get when you see this guy come and kneels, like he's royalty, he's a king to this man. And, and, and then he even addresses him as Lord after that, right, like master. So he, like, places himself underneath the sovereign rule, power, reign of Jesus, right? Like Jesus is his Lord. And, th and then he asks for mercy. He asks for mercy, a.k.a. I need you to heal my son. And what's interesting is that he actually thinks, he actually believes that Jesus is the only one who's able to do this, like who has the power to do such a thing. So we can... We can actually see just by this guy and the way that he came to Jesus what's really going on here already in this text, can't we? Like by this man's approach and his posture and his confession and his supplication, we, we can see that he had a settled faith in Jesus already. That's why he came to him, right? Um, and that's kind of the point of today's passage, right? It, it, it is Jesus who is the object and the strength of our faith, uh, no matter the size of our faith. No matter how much of it or how little of it we have, it's him that's the object and strength of our faith. Um, as a chimney guy who's, you know, spent my life going into people's houses and seeing the inside of people's houses to do my job, um, it's amazing, like, how many houses you can walk into and you see those plaques. I'm not, I hope none of you have them. You probably do. Um, there's those plaques, like, on the living room wall or the dining room wall or whatever that say, faith, hope, love, but there's no qualifier, it's just these words, and, and these words are rad. We all love these words, which is why it sells really well, and people have it hanging in their house. Is it, it just makes you feel good even just to look at these words, right? And, and yet, they're completely pointless if, if you remove the object that those, that those words are to be directed towards. Like, we don't have hope in hope. We don't have faith in faith. 
That would be stupid and silly. We We have hope in God because he's done things and he's able to do things. We have faith in Christ. So, so God is the object of our hope, the strength of it even, right? As well as our faith. But this guy had an object with his faith and it was Jesus. And we, we actually see this over and over again in our gospel narratives, right? Do you remember the woman that touched Jesus's Garment. I can't remember where that was. I think we have to go backwards in Matthew to find that. But she had this medical condition for like 12 years that obviously nobody could fix. Like nobody could help her with it. And so like her thought to herself is like, if I can, if I can just get close enough to touch him, if I could just get a piece of him, I'll be healed. And so like she crawls in behind him with this crowd that's pressing in and she just reaches out and, and gets a, just a piece, just a touch, right, of, of Jesus. And that's her thought, if I can only do this. And so Jesus turns around like, who did this? And he knows, of course. And, and he addresses her and he looks at her and he says, your faith, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Not, not her faith in the garment, It may look that way or someone may teach it that way. That's not what she was saying by if I could just touch his robe. That's not what she meant is that the robe's got healing power. It's him. It's that which is connected to him. It's all about him, right? He was the object of her faith and she just needed a piece of him. This man here in our text today seems to have that same kind of faith in Jesus. Now, the issue this man has is that his son's demon-possessed. Right? We know that because of verse 18. It tells us so if we cheat. Um, he's demon-possessed. Some translations may read as though he just has a medical condition like epilepsy, but the actual context um, should lead us to a conclusion that the physical manifestations that this young man has are a result of demonic possession. In fact, some translations say lunatic. Like, have mercy on my son, he's a lunatic. And I think that you guys know what that means. That sounds a little more disrespectful, doesn't it? Um, But Luna, what does that sound like? Lunar, right? Moon. And so like back in the day, they had this idea that like if someone like stared at the moon too long, like then they they would go loopy. They would go over the moon or they would become a lunatic, right? And so they would use that expression for anyone who wasn't acting right, right? to say like, oh, they, they must have been staring at the moon for too long, you know? So that's kind of where that, that comes from. It's one who's starstruck. But, but nevertheless, whatever the proper description is, right, of, of, of what's going on here, the result is that the son obviously loses control in ways that he's a danger to himself and very possibly a danger to others, but we definitely know that he's a danger to himself. That's what his dad says here, Right? Sometimes he falls into the fire. Sometimes he falls into the water, right? This man goes on to say in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. They could not heal him. In other words, I brought him to those who follow you. I brought him to those who live with you. I brought him to those who learn from you. And they couldn't fix him. They couldn't fix him. And this is, this is kind of interesting that like, he brought his son to men first, okay? And I don't want to make too much out of it, but like that's, that's an interesting bit of information, that he, he brought his son 
to the disciples first rather than Jesus. But those men were unable. They were incapable of fixing his greatest need. And the truth is, like, this could be, we could preach a full sermon on this right now. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Because this is exactly what we do, isn't it? Even as believers, this is so much of the time what we do. When we have a trial and we are pressed upon and challenges happening in our lives, we will almost go to every single person or place or thing to find relief and find solution before we go to him. Okay, maybe you don't, but I do. <laughs> he's like last, like, he's like, okay, like, if these things don't pan out, like, we'll do some business. You know what I mean? Which is so stupid. I don't know why I do that. Like, I would think that I know, I know so much better, you know, at this point. But we do this, and, and, and non-believers do the same thing, right? We know those people that are out there, and we're, we're looking at them, and we're, we're just screaming, like, our heart's just screaming, like, you need Jesus. Like, everything that you're telling me about your life and the things that are, uh, that are killing you. Inside, like Jesus is the answer, right? But people, people don't start there. We, we go everywhere else and we exhaust everything else before uh, we go there. Now, I, I don't think, like I said, I don't think this is necessarily what this dude was doing by going to the disciples first, but, it, but it's amazing how often we do. Um, even in the church, guys, we, the pastors, we are here to go to the gates of hell with you. We're here to do whatever we can. Um, but our, our primary job is to go like this. You know what I mean? Like, we don't wear capes. We've tried at times, and it's just exhausted us. We are not superheroes. We started off thinking that we were just going to come in and save the world and save everybody from their, their trials and their trouble. We became your proverbial saviors, and it darn near killed us and ran us out of ministry. Okay? Our job as pastors is to go like this over and over again. You know what I'm saying? Um, so don't, don't make us your proverbial savior. There are things that we want to help you with. There are things that we are going to attempt to do, but don't put us on a pedestal. Don't put us somewhere we do not belong. We're just like you at the end of the day. We need Jesus, and at the end of the day, like, he, like I said earlier, he's the best thing about us. He's all we have, just like you, is Christ. All I have is Christ. All you have is Christ, right? And so we're, we're here to point each other as we walk through the wilderness to the promised land to Christ, because that's the best thing we can do for each other, Right? Not a man. So many churches are crumbling and fragmenting. So many pastors are falling today at a rate more than ever. I mean, in all fairness, part of it could be because it's social media and we hear about it now. But you've got so many churches that are built on a personality that when that personality shows a flaw or has a bad day, the whole thing falls. Do not ever allow us to do that here. Don't build this thing on us. Right, there you go. Your stern rebuke. This man tells Jesus, like, I went to your followers, but they couldn't handle the task. And Jesus' response is a little bit surprising here. You know what I'm saying? Look at verse 17. This is just kind of weird. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me, right? And I don't know what... I don't know how it reads in your brain, but like this is a bit shocking to me <laughs> when I read this coming uh, red letter, <laughs> right? Um, because it comes off a bit rude. I mean, like, like Jesus seems genuinely bothered here, like genuinely bothered and frustrated and annoyed as if maybe even the needy, those who are in need are wearing on him right now. 
That's almost what it, what it seems like. And, and we don't see this that often. Like, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I feel guilty. Like, I, I feel like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, you know what I mean? Because I, I know that's true of me. I feel like this is how he responds most of the time when I come to him. I don't know about you, but, but it seems a bit shocking because uh, we know and we depend on Jesus to be the embodiment of the exact opposite of this kind of a response, right? Like we've come to expect it. He's, he's just the one who's just patient only and, and kind only and meek only and mild only and humble only and forgiven only and gentle, you know, only. But, but here, he just lets them have it. And, uh, and he tells them why. He tells them why. It's neat that we don't have to guess because they are a faithless and twisted people. And twisted here just, just means perverse. It means to distort, okay, to distort, to misinterpret. Um, and, and so the question like becomes like, who exactly is he talking to? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who, who exactly is he talking to? He does say generation, right, which seems broad, but it can also, that can also be meant in a narrow sense, depending on who he's directing this to, like his disciples, you know what I mean? Um, and, and to me, it seems like unlikely that Jesus would be directing this disdain at the, the, the father of this boy, because we've already seen that that dude did end up coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus. Like he did have faith in Jesus, right? So I, I have a hard time thinking that that dude would be included. But on the other hand, he did go to Jesus' disciples first. So I don't know. I don't know. Okay. It's easier for me to think that Jesus is directly addressing his disciples. And here's why. They're the ones who have front row seats to all of his miracles and all of his healings and all of his divinity and divine acts every single day, and yet they seem to still be empty of faith, right? How long am I to bear with you? How long before you get it is basically another way to say that. And again, how, how this is us, how this is me so many times in my in my life, even though I've seen, witnessed, experienced, know his faithfulness over and over again in the trail behind me. I know it. And yet it's, it's, it's still this. I'm good at doubt. I'm really good at it. Thankfully, Jesus caps this rebuke with reception, ultimately. So here's the good news, if we can find some, Right? He rebukes, but then he receives. Bring him to me. And, and praise God that this is how he concludes with unbelief. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this is why I'm here. This is why you're here, ultimately, because we're not experts at this thing. Uh, it's his goodness still, in spite of our unfaithfulness, that we're banking on, people. We're banking on it. Otherwise, I promise you, heaven's going to be empty. It's, it's, it's about what he's capable of, not what you're capable of. It's about his faithfulness, right? His commitment to you, not your commitment to him. All right, let's get this over with, is what Jesus kind of says. Uh, let's do this. I am willing and I am able. So verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly, instantly. So Jesus rebukes the demon after he rebukes the people, and the demon leaves. And Jesus commanded the demon to come out, and the demon had no choice but to come out. It had no choice. It could do nothing other than obey him. 
Nothing other than obey him instantly. Why? Because Jesus is the authority having jurisdiction. That's why. He's the authority having jurisdiction. He is the reigning Lord over all things that exist, both good and bad, which is why we are able to go to him with everything. He is the sovereign power and authority over all things, the one who has come to bind and plunder the house of the strong man. Remember that when we talked about that? Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus sets forth a parable having to do with the kingdom, and he goes into this little word working that's about a dude coming to a house and tying up the owner of the house so that he can basically plunder his house. And he's saying, that's me. That's what you're seeing me do. We're seeing him do it right here. We're seeing him tie up Satan, right, by, by using and proclaiming his authority over the demonic entities that are Satan's. He's tying them up. He's binding them so that he can plunder Satan's house. That's what Jesus was ultimately doing when he came to earth the first time. Yes, he was dying for our sins, but that's the, that's the ultimate statement of the house being plundered, Right? That we're no longer under the captivity of the lies and the deceit of Satan through our sin, but then Christ came and crushed him and set us free from our sin, so we are no longer owned by Satan, we can now be owned by God. He plundered his house, people, when he came to this earth. And this is really what we're seeing right here, when we see him do things like this, and further walking around and directing, telling Satan's army what to do. And they had no choice. This is pretty amazing. This is also something that you and I should take comfort in as Christians. Satan, Jesus, not same level. Satan, Jesus. Do we get that? If we don't, we're going to live in weird ways. We're going to think weird things. We're going to do weird things. We're going to interpret things going on in our lives and the lives of others in weird ways. Jesus is king over everything, over everything, people. The other dude's just a, the other guy's just a dog on his leash. Seriously. Like, and I don't mean that like I would ever go to Satan and say that because he'll beat me up, but like, he's just, he's, he's just a dog on God's leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. Okay? We see that again here with his authority being exercised the way that he, that he does that. He's, he's plundering the house of the strong man, right? Um, this is uh, how Jesus displays his earthly power and authority oftentimes when he came is by doing things like this. It's not because it's normative for you and I to walk around and cast out demons. It's because he was displaying, he was making known to people, I am that guy you've been waiting for. I am that one who's come down from God. I am the Messiah. That's what he was doing by walking around and doing these crazy things that he was doing. And he did it all by reliance on who? The Father. He says this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus was only doing, only committed to walking in perfectly that which the Father was doing. He came to please the Father, and you can almost call this kind of dedication, right, and steadfastness an act of faith. 
And I know that sounds weird because it's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus was God. He didn't need faith. You ought, probably ought to think about this. This is an interesting question. Because we have this thing, again, called the hypostatic union where he was 100% God, but he was, always, he was, he was also 100% man. At the same time, he was like you and I walking in things that you and I walk in, experiencing challenges that you and I experience, right, in the way that we do, whether it be temptation or whether it be suffering or whether it be whatever it was. Jesus was having to walk in a full commitment and dependence upon the Father. He goes to the garden the night before he goes to the cross, right, and he prays. He's sweating drops of blood, and if there's another way... Right? This is God we're talking about. Like they made this deal before the foundation of the earth, they thought. If there's another way, let's do it right now. Forget the cross. Let's, let's, let's exhaust our options again. Right? So like in a way, like Jesus did walk and exemplify an active faith in the way that he lived upon the Father. Right? Which is a dependence, a devotion upon the Father for, for all things. So he relied on the Father. He trusted the Father. Uh, he walked actively because of this in a big faith, okay? A big faith. This is the difference between these guys standing in front of him that day and him. This is the difference between you and me sitting in this room today and him. And this is actually made clear. We can talk about this later if you don't think so. In verses 19 and 20. Then disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? This is key to the entire passage and what it is that's trying to be communicated to us. This question, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, you couldn't do it. Uh, For truly I say to you, if you had faith, Like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So key question, how come you could do this, but we couldn't do this? Answer, because you do not possess a faith like mine. When Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. He's not saying, go and figure out how to have more faith. Go, muster, go close your eyes and squint really hard and go, more faith, more faith, more faith. I don't know if it's ever worked for you. It's never worked for me. I don't know how to just will more faith, right? He's saying, you don't have this, but I do. You don't have this. But I do. This is why through him, you ready? All things are possible. Through him. Because this is true, this boy is healed. Because this is true, the father of this boy is relieved. See, see this is where the, way, the word faith movement gets this all wrong. And we have to be really careful with this. It's just growing and growing and growing and getting bigger. And I don't know why. I don't know why it's allowed to. It's such a perversion of the fullness of our, of our Bibles. But this is where they get it all wrong. Because they'll, they'll say, like, I, I, know, I, I, I know about Jesus. Like, I'm a friend of Jesus. I spend time with Jesus. I read my Bible. I go to church. Therefore, I'm like Jesus. I can do all things, right? I can do all things through a verse that's taken out of context. 
right? And, 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 before you, and before you know it, we're not looking to, relying on, depending on Jesus any longer, but ourselves and our ability and our faith in ourselves to produce something big. And this is, this is where it gets challenging because it's our tendency. Once it becomes about ourselves, right, the word faith movements, demands, and incantations become about what they want and what they want to see and what they want to do and what they want to produce rather than him and what he wants to do and what he wants to see and what he wants to produce. It's a slippery slope. We end up like Simon the Magician. Remember him, like Acts chapter 8? I think we remember him, where you got, you got Philip that's like um, preaching the gospel and people are getting saved, right? And, but you got Simon over here, like he's in the other part of town, and this dude's a magician. Like, he's doing tricks, and he's doing like really good tricks, because everybody in town is saying like, this dude does the works of God. This dude, dude is working in the power of, of God, and they really thought he was something by this, the stuff he was doing. But he's really, like, interested in what, like, Philip's doing over here. There's kind of a buzz going on with these people getting saved while he's preaching the gospel. So he goes and checks it out, and Jerusalem also hears about people getting saved, right? Word gets back to those guys. So Peter and John go to where Philip is to see what God is doing there, and then when they get there, they lay hands on people, and people get the Holy Spirit, right? They get the Holy Spirit, and then, and then Simon goes, okay, I need that. I don't have that trick. <laughs> I don't have that trick, and I want that trick. Right? And it was all about him. It was all about him exploiting that for himself. That's why he wanted it. And, of course, he gets rebuked, and it's really weird because he also gets saved, which is awesome. <laughs> right? Like, there was, a, there was some strong words that go back to this dude from Peter, but, like, he gets saved, but really it was all about him. He's seeing this work of God, this supernatural act of God go down, and he's like, I need that. And, and it would have been for him. No other reason than but for him and his little traveling show that he had going on. So this is, this is like, kind of like what we're talking about here with him. Um, this is what we have seen in our word faith communities, <clears throat> is have taken the supernatural emphasis, okay, Big things, right? The supernatural emphasis of the Christian faith, and they turned it into Christianity. They call that Christianity. So it's not really Christianity, and the church isn't really doing what it should be doing unless we're seeing these things happen, right? It's, so it becomes a show, like the premier Jesus event and experience is these big tricks that we can walk around doing by having a big faith, and it's not, that's not Christianity. Jesus is. Like the person of Christ is, and what he's done is, and what he is doing is, and what he will do is. That's Christianity, right? It, become, it becomes something not that saves and redeems the sinner from his sins, but that entertains the masses and lines the pockets of all those who make it an enterprise, like Simon was doing, right? Um, Leonard Ravenhill bluntly said, I love this quote, this is a day of thin theology and fat preachers. And he's right. He's right. This is a day where our Bible, our scriptural understanding, our doctrinal understanding, theology of God and who he is and what he's like is razor thin. But we, but we all want to see the next show go off. We all want to see the next trick, right? He's totally right. We are busting at the seams with magicians, entertainers, deceivers, living high on the hog, all under the banner of big faith, not big Jesus. 
This is why it's so dangerous for us to isolate and emphasize texts like this for ourselves when it comes to things like the subject of faith, because when we do, we think a real faith looks like an exorcism. Or we think a real faith looks like a mountain moving. Or we think a real faith looks like somebody blurting out an unknown language. But Jesus here is not advocating for a faith that changes the topography of the landscape. I think we all know that here when we read this. Like, it would do no ministerial good to move a mountain. That's not why Jesus came. He's advocating for a faith that causes us, you and I, to run counter to that which we actually think is possible due to him. That's what he's advocating for here. Do we get that? Let me say that again. Jesus is actually advocating for a faith that causes us, you and I, to run counter to that which we actually think is possible due to him in us. This is what we're talking about. It is true that a real faith will manifest itself in a way that causes those around us to sit up and take notice. Like, that'll happen, but not necessarily for the reasons that we may think it will. It's not going to be because we can lift a car if we feel like it. It's not going to be because we can knock someone over with our breath, even though I I think I could right now. (laughs) I need some gum. Right? Like, on the contrary... Like, the greatest evidence of a big and an active faith that we have in our scriptures is one that primarily comes out of how we suffer, how we endure trial and hardship, how we face death because we believe that Jesus is real. This is where a big faith is actually noticed and an unbelieving world pays attention. Here he goes with you know, suffering theology again. This is, this is real. This is a big part of a big faith, people, throughout our entire Bibles. Um, think about, where is it, Second Peter 3? Um, think about it. When he, when, he, when he says, be ready to give to every man an answer, the hope that lies within you, what's the context there? It's a church that is getting killed and getting snuffed out and getting wiped out by their oppressors. It's a persecuted church. And he's saying that when you guys respond, or maybe we should say don't respond the way that the world expects you to, to this harassment that you're getting, they will notice that. They're going to ask you how in the world and why in the world you're able to respond that way or not respond this way. This is one of the, the greatest, most powerful, big faith activities you and I can walk in is suffering well. Think about, um, to take it a little farther, think about Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the hall of faith, right? It's this entire catalog, like library of the result of uh, people walking in a faith, right? So you have Hebrews 11, which starts off with like, Abel, uh, by faith, Abel um, offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Like, by faith, Abraham, or Noah built a boat. Like, by faith, Abraham... Um, Uh, traveled uh, to a place way out in the wilderness he had never seen before and left his home, right? Like he went into this place that was like, what am I doing out here? You know what I mean? By faith, Moses uh, didn't become identified as an Egyptian like he could have to skip out on persecution, but he, he chose to be identified as an Israelite, as a Jew, 
and sat under persecution instead, right? And then you start moving through these accounts, and then it gets to the part where it's like, by faith, these people were abducted by other nations because of who they were and what they believed. And they were killed, and they were arrested, and they were sawn in half, right? And they were walking around with goat skins wrapped around them in the wilderness because all their possessions were taken from them because of who they are and what they believe because they looked for something better. It's throughout our scriptures. And this is the part. When you see somebody that has no business going through what they're going through, the way that they're going through it, that, that'll speak. That'll preach. That's got legs. I don't know what we're, what we're doing. Um, um, here's the conclusion, all right? You're like, yeah, give that to me. We're getting hungry. This is the conclusion of our text today, Matthew, that Jesus was the one with a faith bigger than a grain of a mustard seed, which is why he was the one who was able to do what he did. That is what our text tells us here. You and I may not be able to move mountains, but he can. You and I may not be able to cast out demons, but he did. He is the one who defeated sin and death and Satan, the biggest mountains, the biggest mountains that have been and that needed to be moved on our behalf. He did. He did. And he did it by living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and vacating the grave, all due to that which was set before him, right? That's what Hebrews 12.1, concluding Hebrews 11 that I just talked about, that's where it concludes. He had a joy um, set before him in enduring the cross, right? What he knew to be ahead is how he was able to endure the cross, right? And, and, and so who is Jesus in regards to our faith? He is the author and the perfecter of it. That's what our scriptures tell us. He's the one who gives it to us, it originates there, and he's the one who develops it and brings it to completion. And I don't know what you think about that, but I'd say praise God, because I know otherwise I'm a total failure in this. Like, praise God that, that, again, it depends on him, not me, right? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. It, it, It means that our faith begins with him, it's grounded in him, it's complete in him, it ends with him. Uh, even though we ourselves have not seen him, right? Hebrews 11:1. 1. If you don't know what faith is, here's a clean definition. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11:1. 1. It's all about him, not about us or the cool things we want to do or the amazing stuff we want to see, which, it, which is the emphasis in a lot of circles. It's all about him. It's all about seeing him. It's easy for me to look at a text like Matthew 17 and think, well, my son's still out there and lost because my faith sucks. I don't have enough. If I just had more, if I just had more, and then day after day I try to figure out how to muster up more, and, and I don't know how, it's above my pay grade, right? What, what, what do I do with this, right? But, but like Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 and 100 other scriptures assure me that it's not about my faithfulness. It's not about my faithfulness. Rather, it is still and always will be about his. About his. Even if it doesn't look right, even if it doesn't feel right, 
Even if I haven't seen the outcome that I've prayed for or hoped for, I do know, I believe with all my heart, that he is enough and he is right and he is doing something. I believe it anyway. And so at the end of the day, know this, when we enter glory, we will not be in heaven because our faith was big. We will not be there because our faith was big. We will be there because his faithfulness towards us was big. After all, when Jesus hung on that cross for our sins, he didn't just hang there for our lying and our cheating and our stealing and our lusting and our idolatry and our murdering. He also hung there for our unbelief. What's the last thing he said before he gave up his breath? God forgive them for they know not what they do. He's making a declaration to their benefit at the end for their unbelief to to give them something they don't possess, faith in him. So what's the application? Some of you want are just like, give me the goods, give me the formula so I can get out of here. Okay, Uh, this may not be what you're looking for, but here's here's the application. What does this mean to me right now, today, in my walk with Jesus? Can I grow in this thing? Can I grow in my faith or what? And the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, we, we know that faith, that which we have, is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8. It's not something we did. It's not something that originated in us. It's something that he gave us. We also know that it's God who gives different measures of faith to each individual person. That's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Right? So, so it is him who distributes and it is him who quantifies or gives us the measure of faith that we have. However, I believe the scriptures teach that we can enhance or maximize that which he has given each of us. We can quench, empty, drain, not all the way, praise God, or we can maximize and fill and enhance. And that happens for each of us, all of us, each day by getting more Jesus. You're like, really, that's it? That's it. You want more faith? More Jesus. Bigger faith? Bigger Jesus. (laughs) Right? More of him is what we need. More Jesus is the answer for these 12 dudes that day. More Jesus is the answer, and and it's the same answer for you and I today. Right here, right now. It's more Jesus. More scripture, more prayer, more dependence, more reception, more self-control, more self-denial, more fellowship, more engagement in the body of the church, more conversation with him, more listening to him, more discipline, more practice of that which is righteous, more, more, more of all these things will give us more Jesus, which will produce more faith. All of it. I also praise God that it does not require a big faith on our part to have part in Jesus and all his saving goodness towards us. I heard this stupid little analogy, which is like, okay, and maybe this will bring comfort to you. We'll just end right here. I don't know. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's just straight dumb. You got three guys that go onto an airplane. They're all going to the same place, right? One of them is extremely confident in that experience. He has no problem traveling on airplanes. In fact, he's done some work on airplanes. He's engineered some stuff. He actually understands how they work. He realizes how reliable they are, like he's confident in that plane. 
when he goes to that airport and gets on. The second guy is just probably like most of us, you or me, like we're, we don't really like it. It's not something we're looking forward to. And we know in the back of our head, like this is dumb that I'm actually like this high in the air going over land, but like it's going to be fine. We don't need to like fully medicate or have someone knock us out before we go into the seat, right? We're like, okay, whatever. Like, so we're kind of like average, you know, and then you've got this third dude that's just like, this is, the, this is like worse than going to the dentist. Like this is the worst experience you could possibly have. And this dude has to down a fifth of something before he crawls onto that plane. You know what I mean? Like this guy's terrified. Which one has faith? All three of them. They all three got onto that plane. I know people that actually will not, no matter what, get onto a plane. All three of them got onto a plane, different ways, different levels of faith. They all got to the same destination, even though some were a wreck. And so some of you are a wreck on your way to the kingdom, you know. But uh, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. That's what matters. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. Thank you, Lord, um, that there's nothing you can't do. There are some of us here today that have been praying for a long time for things. And it's easy for us to think things that we shouldn't think about you. God, increase our our faith and stability in what we already know to be true about you, regardless of what we see, regardless of what we feel. And I ask, Lord, that we would all have a hunger and a desire for more of you, more Jesus. It is so easy for us to put you on the sidelines of our lives and go to other things and occupy ourselves with other things, and we're just cheating the reality of of a closer relation, a, a bigger faith in you, more joy. And, and so I, pr- I pray, Lord, that, that we would do business with those things and that we, we, we would just hunger and thirst for, for more righteousness, more of you. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. When, uh, when that last day happens and you collect all your saints and the whole deal is done, there's not going to be one boast or brag. We'll all know that it's because of your faithfulness that we're there. And so we thank you for that. Every day we thank you for that. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.